I want to encourage you, if you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, to join me in turning to Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. At North Roanoke, we generally work through books of the Bible because we believe God sent us a book, and we want to understand what He has said to us in the way that He has sent it to us. And so, as we've been working through the book of Hebrews, we have seen that abandoning faith in Jesus would be a terrible idea because Jesus is the person and the point of the Old Testament. He is the solution that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was anticipating. And I was thinking about this um, last night, in fact. This is why, and not all of you are in a Sunday school class that has this curriculum, but this is why we've introduced the Gospel Project curriculum as an option in some of our Sunday school classes at North Roanoke. We can get so down into the details of God's Word that we miss the big picture of the story. And so there are some of our Sunday school classes working through in a three-year timeline from Genesis to Revelation, so you can really see that Jesus is the person and the point and the subject of the Old Testament story in total. And so uh, there's an opportunity, if you don't have a Sunday school class, uh, we do have Sunday school classes working through that curriculum. We have others that spend much more deliberate time just in one book of the Bible. Uh, But the reason we do that is because Jesus is, as Hebrews shows us, the person that the Old Testament is pointing us to as our Savior, as our solution And to get to that point, Hebrews has already shown us that because Jesus is the Son of God, He's greater than the angels through whom the law was given. Uh, He is God's final word to us. Furthermore, we've seen that Jesus is greater than Moses to whom the law was given. He's greater than Joshua who brought the Israelites into the promised land because He takes us into the presence of God. And now we are seeing that Jesus is greater than even the entire Levitical priesthood. That argument begins to be made in chapter 4, and it continues with some sort of interruptions in thought all the way to, the, uh, to chapter 10. So it's this last point that we find ourselves exploring in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And the point is that Jesus had a better priesthood than all of the old covenant priests. It, it is that The priesthood of Jesus is greater than the priesthood of that of the Old Covenant. And he's he's proving that by comparing and contrasting the two priesthoods. The priesthood of the the temple and the priesthood of Jesus. And that's what's going to take place here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Would you join me in hearing the word of God? For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is beset with weaknesses. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. 
In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Would you pray with me? God, help us to understand this text of Scripture. God, help us to know how it applies to our lives and help us to glorify you as we delight in how great a Savior you are. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Once more, Hebrews is taking a deep dive into the identity of Jesus in order that we will not stray from so great a Savior or neglect so great a salvation. And before we dive into these verses this morning, I want to make sure we don't miss the overall point. Moeller summarizes it this way, Christ's appointment as a high priest is greater than any other high priest's appointment. Therefore, Jesus can grant eternal salvation to all of those who obey him. And to prove this point, in verses 1 through 4, he describes for us the priesthood of a typical priest or a typical high priest in the Old Testament. The high priest was taken from among men. Do you see that in verse 1? Why? So that he could minister in the most holy place of the tabernacle and then of the temple on behalf of humankind by offering sacrifices, burning incense, and offering gifts. And Jesus, like a typical high priest, comes to offer gifts, but he comes to offer himself. So like a typical high priest, Jesus is a man representing people before God. So there's a point of similarity there between Jesus and the Old Testament. Next, in verses 2 and 3, we see that high priests could deal gently with those who were ignorant. Now, when it says they were ignorant, it doesn't mean they had a low IQ. It means those who sinned in ignorance, those who, who committed sins of which they were unaware that they were sinning, as well as the misguided, meaning those who were wandering from God. It wasn't a rebellious heart. It wasn't a a direct desire to violate God. It was just a, a drifting. And so Jesus came, uh, the, the priest, rather, would offer sacrifices for those who, who were ignorant, who committed sins in ignorance, and those who, who wandered from the ways of God. They could deal gently with these sinners. Why? Because they also were sinners. They, too, needed a sacrifice for their own sins. We've already read that Jesus is sinless in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. So there's an implied question here. If, they, if the old covenant priests could identify with sinners because they were sinners, then how can Jesus identify with me if he's sinless? Let's hold that thought. We're going to get there. But before we do, we need to understand one more detail about old covenant high priests and it is this high priests did not pick themselves they were appointed they were designated they were selected by God one commentator observes the priesthood was not a volunteer position Aaron did not apply to become high priest he was not elected for the people by the people God called him to be high priest 
God's calling emphasizes the servant nature of the high priest's role. Even though the high priest held an exalted office, his office was motivated by service and marked by humility because the reason he had the position is God called him to do it. So after introducing for us the typical high priest, the high priest of the Old Testament, the author now dives in in verses 5 through 10 he jumps in to the priesthood of Jesus, and he wants, us to show, he wants us to see that the priesthood of Jesus is greater than any other priesthood. So running back to the Old Testament or running back to the law would be crazy because Jesus is the final and the forever and the greater high priest. So here's what we learn in verses 5 through 10 if you're taking notes. We must not retreat from faith in Jesus because, one... God has appointed Jesus as permanent high priest. We're not looking for anybody else to come along. Second, Jesus is the proven and the perfected high priest. We see that in verses 7 through 9. And finally, in verses 9 and 10, Jesus is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. First, God has appointed Jesus as permanent High priest. After telling us about the priests of the Old Testament that they did not choose themselves, he then says, guess what? Jesus didn't even pick himself for this role. Jesus, who is the glory of Israel and the glory of God, did not glorify himself by insisting that he be God's high priest. Instead, he humbled himself. He came down out of heaven doing the will of the Father who selected him as high priest. In John 8.50, Jesus says, I don't seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. The Father seeks the glory of the Son. There is, therefore, no plan B to glorifying God the Father. The only way you can worship and glorify the Father is if you do it through Jesus Christ, the designated high priest. God is not like a large mountain with many trails in many ways up to him. The only way you get to God and glorify God is if God comes down the mountain in the person of his son so that you could know him. So to make this point, in verses 5 through 6, the author of Hebrews quotes from two different chapters in the Psalms. Psalm 2-7 and Psalm 110 verse Four. What, what happens here is fascinating, and I, and I hope I can do it justice. In, in Psalm chapter 2, which we covered a couple of summers ago when we were working through the Psalms, we see the installment or the enthronement of Jesus as forever king following his resurrection and during his ascension to the right hand of the Father. So in, all the way back in Psalm 2, we see the prediction that God's Son will be God's forever King and the nations will run to Him. Those who believe in Him will be His people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. That's back in Psalm 2. All right, But then in verse 6 of Hebrews, the author quotes from Psalm 110 verse 4 where David prophesies that the one who is his Lord is not just a forever king, as we saw all the way back in Psalm 2, but the one who is Lord is also a forever priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Who? Y'all know that name? Melchizedek. Melchizedek is mentioned 
in four verses in the Old Testament. Three in Genesis 14, one in Psalm 110, that's it. And then you get to the book of Hebrews, and Melchizedek is going to be featured here, and then he's going to tell us, I want to tell you more, but I can't because you're not listening very well, you're not paying attention, you don't want to go deep into the things of God, that's next week's sermon. And then he picks it back up in chapter 7. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Melchizedek now, but I can't tell you everything because we're going to have more when we get to chapter 7. All right? Melchizedek. Who in the world is Melchizedek? Melchizedek appears for three verses in Genesis 14 and then one more verse in Psalm 110. Melchizedek, his name means the king of righteousness. And in Genesis 14, we see Melchizedek, whose name means the king of righteousness, was the king of Salem. Most Bible scholars think that is Jerusalem. And Salem means peace. So the king of righteousness, who is from the place of peace, that's the one we're talking about. After Adam and before, excuse me, after Adam, before the fall in the garden, Melchizedek is the only priest king mentioned in Scripture until we get to Jesus. We read about him there in Genesis 14, 17 through 20. You remember the story. There's a regional conflict uh, between kings, and Lot gets tangled up in it, Abram's nephew, and Abraham goes to rescue Lot, his nephew. And he wins this little skirmish, this regional conflict, this warfare. And then here's what we read in Genesis 14, 17 through 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was, so he's a king, he's a king of Salem. And then listen to this, he was priest of God most high. So he's a king and a priest. He blessed them, blessed him, meaning Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, there's a lot I want to say here, but i got to hold some of it back for when we get to chapter 7. But for right now, here's the point. You can't undo, bypass, or ignore the priestly appointment of Jesus by God the Father. Because Jesus is God's once-for-all high priest, even though he is not a Levite, even though he's not a descendant of Aaron, even the Old Testament through the story of Melchizedek proves that God can have a priest who's not in the line of Aaron. In fact, Melchizedek is on the scene before Aaron ever shows up. Like God designated a priest king to give wine and bread to Abraham, God has appointed Jesus as the priest king, to give his body and his blood to rescue us. And when Jesus was raised from the dead and installed as king at the right hand of the Father, do you see it in verse 6? He became a priest forever. Like Melchizedek, just as an outsider priest king was the source of blessing to Abraham, Jesus comes from outside of this world. He's unexpected. He's not a descendant of Abraham. He comes from outside of this world. Now, Jesus is a descendant of Abraham through through David, but he's an outsider. He's sent from heaven and outside of the Levitical priesthood to represent us before God in a way that is forever greater than any other high priest could represent us. 
Jesus is God's designated permanent high priest. And there's no other way to know the love of God the Father than through Jesus because Jesus is the high priest designated by him. Why, why does his priesthood count? Why does it qualify? That's the question that's then answered in verses 7 through 9. We can know and belong to God through Jesus, not only because he died for us, but also because he perfectly lived for God as a man. Look at verses 7 through 9. Verse 7 begins with the words, in the days of his flesh. In this context, this phrase refers to the weakness of the human condition. While living on earth, Jesus shared in the sorrows that come to humanity in a fallen world. Although he was sinless and did not deserve the consequences of the fall, hear this, Jesus obeyed under the conditions of the fall to deliver us from the conditions of the fall. He didn't identify with us by sinning. He identified us with us rather by obeying in the face of the same sort of suffering that our sin deserves. Jesus, in verse 7, we see offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. Does that not bring to your mind Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? As he begged his father, God, if there's another way, take this cup from me. But if there's not another way, then God, your will be done. But notice that it says in the days, not just in the day. Jesus' life was marked by suffering for more than just the last week before his crucifixion. Verse 7 says his prayers and crying were in the days of his flesh. Back in Mark's gospel, we saw that Jesus was opposed by most religious leaders from the start, his brothers in his hometown rejected him. At several points, people were conspiring to kill him. Schreiner puts it this way, sorrow and tears were a regular experience for Jesus. Have you ever encountered sorrow in your life? Have you ever encountered suffering in your life? Tears in your life? Questions in your life about where is God in the midst of this pain? Where is God in the midst of this suffering and yet Jesus never once allowed those conditions to knock him off of obedience to his father. Jesus often prayed for the father to save him from death and God honored that request in the resurrection because of his piety. Do you see that in verse 7? The piety of Jesus means his reverent submission and devotion to the Father. We can be saved because Jesus obeyed in every circumstance that he faced. Jesus always counted the glory of his Father as more important than any other earthly comfort, so the, so the Father answered his prayers in the resurrection. Jesus did what we failed to do. He did not let suffering cloud his view of the Father and become a justification for him to sin. Which is the point that we find in verse 8. Although he was a son. This is amazing. Do you, do you get the point? Even though Jesus is the son of the father, the father allows his son to come. And the son willingly comes to be subjected to the fallenness of our world. So he could run the race faithfully in our place. Even though he was a son... He still had to learn obedience in the way that we need to learn 
obedience. Schreiner observes, when suffering strikes, human beings are inclined to do whatever it takes to avoid it, to find another path where there is joy and refreshment. But Jesus stayed true to his Father at every step of human development and in the face of ever-increasing suffering. Did you ever think about that? As a boy, Jesus is God, but he still learned to obey his parents when he didn't get his way. I mean, when we don't pick the restaurant that my kids want to go to. Whew! Buddy, that's a challenge. Got to have a right attitude. Jesus always had a right attitude when, when he wanted to go to Pizza Hut. And they picked Bellasino's. He was cool as the other side of the pillow. He was good. He learned obedience. In the carpenter's shop, when he got a splinter or he stubbed his toe, he learned obedience in both thought and speech. He never had a bad thought, never had a bad word. When he was rejected and betrayed, he still called Judas his friend and stayed true to the Father's mission despite the emotional agony that was wrecking his soul. While he was hanging on the cross, bleeding and fighting for every breath, and he could have called 12 legion angels and ended his suffering, instead he obeyed and he gave up his life so that his death could count in your place. Jesus is our perfect high priest. He's our perfect substitute because his perfection was proven by his obedience under duress. To say that Jesus learned obedience doesn't mean that he was a sinner and then he beca later became not a sinner. It means that his sinlessness was proven in the face of intensifying suffering and adversity. We are not saved just by the death of Jesus. We are also saved by his perfectly obedient life. In the face of even a death he did not deserve, Jesus proved his faithfulness to God. He didn't cheat he obeyed in the face of greater adversity than any of us will ever endure so that he would be our proven, perfect high priest. And because Jesus is the appointed, permanent, proven, and perfect high priest, we must not abandon him. Rather, what must we do? We must obey him, which is what we see in verses 9 through 10. We see that Jesus is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. As we consider verses 9 through 10, we need to keep in mind that we've just read about the obedience of Jesus. We know Jesus obeyed the Father genuinely and wholeheartedly and perfectly because he obeyed when it was costly. Likewise, those who are saved by Jesus do not abandon faith in him when it is costly. We keep believing in him, and this is proven by our obedience. Because, Jesus is, because of Jesus' perfect obedience as a human, he is, as we read in verse 9, the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. I love verse 9. It shows us both the exclusivity and the inclusivity of the gospel. Jesus is not merely a source of eternal salvation. He is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus is the only source of salvation for all sinners. He is God's appointed, forever, permanent, and perfect high priest Verse 10 again reminds us that Jesus is designated by God according to the order of Melchizedek. He is the source of salvation. It means that salvation springs from Jesus and is available to all who run to him for salvation. So this morning, I want to encourage you, church, to run to Jesus and obey him.
trust him, obey him, believe him. Perhaps 2020 is a new year of new obedience and new faithfulness in your life to Christ. Wherever you are, whatever your need, those who are truly saved do not abandon faithfulness to Jesus when the pressure comes because they've discovered the unparalleled pressure of knowing, believing, and obeying Christ who died for them. So perhaps in 2020, there's someone you need to stop talking about and you need to start praying for or talking to. Perhaps in 2020, your marriage needs a refresh. Maybe you need to consider picking up Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, and you need to read through it together as a couple and deepen your faith in Christ as you walk with Him. Maybe you need to take that Financial Peace University and truly submit your financial life to the Lordship of Christ. If we were to summarize the life of a disciple of Jesus, we could use these words. They pray, they serve, they share the gospel, they give generously, they worship consistently and regularly, they read and study and meditate and memorize the word of God, they love Jesus, they love the local church. What does love do? It keeps no record of wrongs. It is patient, it is kind, it is long-suffering. Do you love your church or do you just love to gripe about it? Do you love your church? Are you obeying Jesus in this area of loving one another and loving him and loving the lost? These are not characteristics of super Christians. These are the characteristics of just Christians. If you love Jesus, you will obey him. It doesn't mean sinless perfection, but it does mean dealing with our sins in the way that God calls us to deal with them, to repent and confess and believe. So whether it's your marriage that needs a tune-up or your finances that need to be submitted to the Lordship of Christ, or you just need to come back to loving Jesus, loving the lost, and loving your church, let 2020 be the year that you are so motivated by the sacrifice of Jesus who is the source of salvation that you can't help but obey him. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, we love you. We submit our 2020 to you. And we ask God that you would find us faithful. For Jesus, our high priest, has been faithful in all things. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you because Jesus bled because he died and because he's raised, we have a hope and a future beyond the grave. And we have a hope and a future and a power to live for him right now. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.